0: Um, So good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, We're having a policy forum today discussing how to reduce the risks of US arms sales. My name is Eric Gomez. I'm the Director of Defense Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. The United States is the world's largest arms exporter by a good margin, and Washington frequently uses these sales as a tool of foreign policy. Last year, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or CIPRI, found that the United States represented 37% of the total global arms sale market, 17 percentage points more than the second place country, which was Russia. During the last three US administrations alone, the United States has approved $1 trillion in weapons sales, not delivered, but approved $1 trillion in weapons sales to 167 countries. Arguments in favor of arms sales often focus on US support for friendly states and the economic benefits of the sales, especially for American jobs and business. But far less attention is paid to analyzing the potential risks of these sales, such as the likelihoods of weapons being diverted, being used against civilians, and otherwise implicating the United States in unsavory or unintended negative outcomes. The Cato Institute's Arms Sale Risk Index Project, which is, I believe, in its fifth year now, um, is an attempt to measure these underexamined risks and provide some sort of quantitative means of measuring the change in risk over time. Uh, Earlier this year, we released the 2021 update to the project, which there's a physical copy outside. And I must say, uh, the project is very data visualization intensive. Um, I think the the publications team here did a great job translating those visuals into the physical copy. Um, But if you go and look at the online version, you can actually interact with the visualizations more and they're they're interactive. So I highly encourage you uh, to check out the online format as well. also in the, arm, in the 2021 update is a new section on small arms and light weapons, which are not often the big ticket items in terms of money or prominence in the news cycle, but they have the high, high risk of being diverted or being used in an unintended way because they're smaller and easier to use. Um, Jordan Cohen, sitting next to me to my left, is the co-author. He's a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute and a co-author of the Arms Sale Risk Index. Um, we also have a uh, Jeff Abramson, the Senior Fellow for Conventional Arms Control and Transfers at the Arms Control Association. Jeff also directs the Forum on the Arms Trade Project. And finally, Congresswoman Sarah Jacobs, who is the uh, representative of California's 53rd Congressional District in the House. She's also a member of the Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committees. And in late last year, she co-sponsored the Arms Sale Oversight Act. And she is she is on her way, uh, but uh, because of the votes running a bit long she will be a little a little late. Um, so we're going to start with Jordan, then Jeff, then the Congresswoman when she arrives. And <coughs> each of our speakers will give some brief opening remarks followed by a moderated discussion and Q&A period. Uh, to submit questions for the folks here, just raise your hand when we get to that period and we'll bring a mic, or actually you come to the mics here and here uh, when you want to ask your question. And then for those watching at home, you can either submit a question using the Slido window on the Cato website, or by using the hashtag #CatoFP with a capital C and a capital FP, uh, if you are watching on Twitter, Facebook, or other social media. Um, so, without further ado, Jordan, you can start us off.
1: All right. Well, yeah. Thank you, everybody. everybody, for coming. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Jeff. And a pre-thank you to the Congresswoman because I'm, I'm positive she's going to watch these first opening remarks as soon as she can. So, <laughs> thank you for the future. So. I'm here to kind of give a brief overview of the Arm Sales Risk Index, and I think as we go along today and we talk more, we're going to talk a lot about how we can work to avoid risk in the arm sales process. But I really kind of just want to start by overviewing what we've found over the last few years, especially this year, when it comes to the risk of U.S. arm sales. And it's important to note, while everything in Washington seems partisan these days, support for arms sales is weirdly not one of those things. Democrats and Republicans both, over and over again, will continue to support weapon sales for large amounts of money. We've seen it across two Democratic administrations, or at least one and a quarter. And we've seen it over two Republican administrations. Since the start of the Bush administration, sales have increased more or less every year. And sales to risky countries have increased every year, no matter who is president, no matter who controls Congress. And the reason for that is, currently, the weapon sales process is focused on one thing. We sell weapons, or we've sold weapons since 2009 to 167 different countries. And again, as Eric said, over $1 trillion since 2009. And this means that the United States sells weapons to whoever is willing to buy them. Yes, things like strategy are important, right? NATO gets a lot of weapons, major non NATO allies get weapons. But at the end of the day, whoever is willing to spend the money will get the weapons. And this is really what caused us to start this project because what we realized is well, nobody in government is actually looking at the risks of these sales and what makes these sales risky. And so we've attempted to do that. We look at We've looked at all of the academic and policy literature and identified four factors that really kind of contribute to risky events happening because of US sales. The first is corruption, government corruption. This works more or less how it sounds. Uh, On one end, corrupt governments can give weapons to people that are going to use them in bad ways. And the US kind of struggles to control that. Or corrupt governments can use these weapons in ways the U.S. didn't want. So like a great example of this is in Pakistan, where in the mid-2000s the U.S. was giving a lot of weapons for counterterrorism, and it turns out those weapons got stationed on the Pakistan-India border, not being used for counterterrorism. And so corruption's a big factor. The second is instability. And again, this works more or less how it sounds. When a government cannot control what happens within, within its own borders, when it's unstable, there's a lot of risks for weapon sales, especially dispersion. And a key example of this is Mexico, where over 2013 to 2016, 56% of homicides came from US weapons, which is only or which is made more alarming because legally owning a handgun in Mexico is difficult. There is one gun store, it's run by the army, and it only sells 38 firearms per day but 70% of recovered firearms from gangs in Mexico were U.S. in origin, which means somebody is selling these weapons illegally or they're getting these weapons in a way the U.S. did not intend. The International Crisis Group for Mexico in 2018 and 2020 identified that Mexican police were engaging in illicit behavior both with weapons and selling weapons to people who are not authorized to buy them. The third factor is domestic human rights, Once again, it is more or less what it sounds, right? Do countries abuse their own populations? Examples of this are in Egypt and the Philippines where the U.S. funds quite a bit of each country's police force and military. Yet during the COVID pandemic, both countries used their police force and military to arrest dissidents. Did they do it with U.S. weapons? That is unclear, but we do know these forces are armed to the teeth with U.S. weapons. And then the final risk factor is if a country's in conflict. And the key example of this that we all talk about now is Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen, where the US is providing Saudi Arabia with quote-unquote defensive weapons. These defensive weapons are designed to prevent Yemeni Houthis from attacking Saudi Arabia inside Saudi Arabia's own borders, which allows Saudi Arabia to fight the war itself in Yemen. Beyond those things, the main findings we have in the risk index are Weapon sales are continuing in massive numbers. And risky countries like Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Egypt, the Philippines, Mexico, are still amongst the top recipients of these weapons. As we're going to talk about more today, there are ways to reduce this that US policymakers really need to be considering. Because the cost of these weapons is substantial, right? There's risks of entanglement. These weapons are dispersed, and the US can end up having weapons used for unintended reasons. And again, I hope as the day goes on, as the event goes on, we talk about kind of ways to reduce this risk. So, great.
0: Thanks. Uh, Jeff, over to you.
1: And let me just start by thanking Cato for inviting me to talk here.
2: It's, it's uh, I was trying to think of an April Fool's connection because it's April 1st today, and, and <laughs> if this weren't uh, so serious, I'd make a funny joke, but these risks this is not a new conversation. This is a conversation that's probably been going on at least four decades. And the fact that we aren't learning as we go is the joke on us for April Fool's Day. But it's 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 not a petty joke, it's a really serious one. Um, but I, I want to, it's hard to believe this index is now five years old because Jordan's co author, Trevor Thrall, when he was, before it got started, I came in and talked with him and the people working on it at that point. And at that point, I was like, this is great. This is what we need because one of the one of the issues around assessing risk is no one put it together all in one place. No one put some numbers on there that we could look at over years. And having that, I mean, and you know, you know DC think tank, I mean, if you can put a number on something or a scale on something, that gives it more weight. And the, this risk index is great. I mean, I, I encourage looking at it um, one of the things that I find really interesting is that they actually look at the human rights reports. I'll talk about this in a minute, but the human rights reports are actually in existence because of arms sales. Um, but. We all seem to just ignore these annual human rights reports from the State Department, which are a little bit delayed this year, but apparently will be coming out later this month. Um, But the other piece I want to flag that Jordan talked about is the addition this year of small arms and light weapons. This is an issue that's particularly near and dear to me. Um, I testified to Congress a few years ago when there were changes under the way, which we can talk about more in a minute. But essentially, we now as a public have much, much less transparency into semi-automatic and non on weapons that are now controlled by the Commerce Department rather than by the State Department as they were in the past. Um, it seems that an increase of, this, of sales of these weapons has occurred. And when we talk about human rights, these are the weapons that you need to be talking about. These small arms and light weapons, which aren't in these trillion-dollar figures. This is a tiny bit of that. And when we talk about the arms trade, we often talk about these major weapon systems and the big trends and those. But paying attention to the small arms, light weapons was a very welcome addition to, to this year's risk index. I have three sort of baskets I want to quickly talk about. Uh, one is what is actually in the law that we could be doing. As I said, this isn't a new conversation. There's actually, the United States has some really great law and I'll have some advice on how we can use it better. Um, The representative, when she arrives, will probably talk about some legislation she introduced this morning. But there's actually, I'm a little more optimistic than Jordan, perhaps, in that I think there has been a a great deal more attention to the risks in the arms trade over the last few years within Congress. And there is a a number of legislation pieces that have been introduced that are worth attention. And then finally, I'm going to make some maybe bigger picture thoughts about engagement with the world what the Biden administration is doing, their rhetoric, and how we can talk about arms sales and that. So first off, existing law. There is great existing law in the Foreign Assistance Act from 1961, which has been re, uh, you know been updated in the arms, sales, arms Export Control Act. One of the very underused pieces of this is the um, 502B, which is part of the Foreign Assistance Act, which actually established the reason for having human rights reports, 502B is actually, or the Foreign Assistance Act is actually pretty strong about not sending weapons to places where they will be misused. Congress, if they want at any point, could ask the State Department to tell them if there are any concerns in a particular country or sale. And if the State Department doesn't reply within 30 days, those sales are supposed to be cut off. After those 30 days, Congress could Implement, it could put in a resolution of disapproval, or not disapproval is not the right term, resolution that would impact on whether those sales to that country continue. Never, well never, almost never used piece of law, very strong law, that if our Congress members would pay more attention to, we could see this become the norm. If there are concerns, it's not a big deal. You ask. You ask the State Department, okay, we're hearing this, we're hearing that, we're seeing that. Can you look? give us some more information. It's not really a, a tough request, it's just one that's never been happening. On arm sales themselves, some of you are probably familiar, and the q and I think will bring this up, that the, the most attention we see on an arm sale are ones that are done under the foreign military sales process, which are government-to-government ones, because the, when those are notified to Congress, they go on a website. So you and I, and I, I do this all the time, I have a little alert the, to tell me when things come on that site. 30 days, Congress could pass a resolution of disapproval in both chambers to block a sale. That's almost the only time you hear about an arms sale until it's delivered. That's a mechanism that we're seeing being used. But any point until a weapon is out the door, which sometimes is years later, Congress could pass legislation or anything to change that sale. They never do that, but they almost never do that. But that's another piece that's existing law that could be used. And then finally, one of the real concerns around risk is you make this assessment today, and then the Taliban takes over Afghanistan, right? I mean, are we still selling weapons to Afghanistan? No. Did we have a ton in the pipeline? Yes. Afghanistan is an example that everyone knows. But this happens in other countries without so much attention, and we continue arms sales of those countries. Congress could enable themselves to get a pre-delivery notification. So 30, 60 days before these weapons go out the door, they could say, we need to know this is happening. They don't ask for that. I think I understand they've done that once or twice. That's another piece of law that could be used. OK, so this is a basket. The Leahy Law is another one in that basket that the administration, successive administrations have interpreted to only apply to training that is paid for by another country. But actually, the Leahy Law, if you read it right, applies to arms sales to countries. So we don't apply Leahy vetting, which says arms sales shouldn't go to units that have committed abuses. Another piece of law that we could be using. OK, stop that basket. Go to the second basket. Legislation that's been introduced. There, I'll point to a few real fast. And I imagine the Congresswoman will go a little bit more in depth in the Value in Arms Sales Act, which is one that was introduced by Senator Murray, Murray in the previous Congress and again this year, which establishes countries of concerns, establishes an oversight. This would bring a lot great, more attention to the human rights factors in the arms sales. There is bipartisan legislation in both the House and the Senate that's been introduced um, called the National Security Powers Act. It's got a different name in the House. That would flip the script. This is a uh, Congress that they want to sort of take control over the fact that they actually gave the, administra- they gave the President control over arms sales, uh, they can now flip the script to say, for select countries, certain sales, Congress has to pre-approve. Right now, Congress has to pass resolutions of disapproval that can survive a veto, which has never happened. So Congress could flip the script, which is a piece of legislation that is out there that has garnered a lot of attention. Um, There's the Safeguard Act which would insert human rights language into arms sales processes. It would make certain arms sales more transparent. Uh, it has been introduced by Senator Menendez in the Senate and Chairman Meeks of the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the House, so it has some strong backing. And then Ilhan Omar has again introduced uh, uh, human rights and arms sales legislation that is the most progressive of all those. So these are some legislation to be on the lookout for. I think the fact that these are have in some cases, bipartisan support already is a sign of greater congressional attention. Uh, I think it's important to sort of recognize that uh, uh, Trump was almost impeached over arms sales because this was you know and it was to Ukraine right is whether he misused authorities uh, we forget this not that long ago so I want to go to the big picture real fast and I'm probably going over time, but I think we're maybe stalling a bit That's so funny. I can. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's been really interesting to listen to the rhetoric of the Biden administration. I, I, I think administration administration's doing some things I'm, I'm happy they're doing. Um, but going back to even last year, before the Ukraine crisis right now, the rhetoric from the Biden administration and from him before he was elected was very much this democracies versus autocracy language. Um, and this was what the Summit for Democracies was all about last year and this idea that we are going to act in some way different than the other, than the autocracies. So all the criticism of Russia, I think, is completely deserved. No reason why Russia should be in, fighting in Ukraine. It's an, unprovoked ex, it's an unprovoked invasion. The treatment of Ukrainians and the way the war is conducted is terrible. And he, you know, just in Poland last weekend, was saying this again, that we, you know, this is a fight between democracies and autocracies. Um, I have some concerns about this approach in that so many of our friends, or so many of the people we sell weapons to, are the autocracies. Um, And that's what the risk index shows as well, is the countries, some of them aren't so risky, but a lot of the ones that are receiving our weapons are these Saudi Arabias, the UAEs, these Middle Eastern countries and others, where the pattern of misuse exists. The risk factors are all there, and we continue to do it. I haven't redone the numbers, but Eric talked about the CIPRI data, which is the global data on arms sales. And uh, the most recent report, which came out uh, a month ago, less than a month ago, the United States continued to increase its standing, if that's the right term, in the arms trade, now counting for 39% of global arms trade, as Russia and China both are shrinking in this global arms trade. I ran a year ago, well, not a year ago, after the Summit for Democracies occurred, I took the CIPRI data and compared who was invited to the summit versus who was not invited. And more than 45% of the major arms sales in the decade beforehand had gone to the countries not invited. So if you're talking about we want to bring democracies together and we want to strengthen that, and then we're selling weapons to all these countries that we won't even invite to the table of democracies, uh, it's, it's telling that something is wrong in our approach. Um, on that, and this gets a little bit more out of the arms trade, but I think it's difficult for us in D.C. to understand around the world, the U.S. isn't seen the way we see it. Um, and the skepticism of, of U.S. grandstanding is real. And for the U.S. to be believable, it needs to change what it also does when it engages in war. So if if I have another minute, if that's all right, I'll I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Okay. Um, Next week, there is an ongoing process that's been happening internationally that's gotten very little attention on creating a political declaration on the use of explosive weapons in populated areas. The Irish have been leading this. We thought that it would conclude this next week, but it may extend into May. But this is where countries around the world are trying to agree, how are we going to fight wars, and how are we going to avoid civilian harm in populated areas? This is exactly the criticism that we have of Russia and their war in Ukraine right now. The United States, unfortunately, has played a spoiler in this conversation. Um, I think the United States actually does try to avoid civilian harm. But there's just been so much going out and revelations about the harm, the way the United States conducts war and the civilians that are hurt. And uh, Representative Jacobs has signed on to a letter. There's an ongoing process for the Defense Department to try and improve these practices. But for the United States to be believable, I think next week, I haven't heard what this uh, team will be negotiating, but, but based on what they did in March last year, the United States is gonna say we should not use the word avoid. They will say we should not use the word avoid when we, when we are combating in urban areas uh, of explosive weapons that have wide area effects. I think the United States should commit to avoiding that. Um, the United States uh, needs to sort of use this moment to change the way it approaches things. And I have to give credit. When I listen to the Biden administration talk about making foreign policy and domestic policy linkages, They are humble in ways. They say, we need to do better on human rights at home. And this ties into, I think, other ways the United States is out of the norm of its allies. So for example, in this war in Ukraine, early on, Russians were using cluster munitions. The United States condemned Russia properly for using cluster munitions, which essentially are weapons that create smaller weapons, little cluster munitions out of a bigger bomb that lie around, they don't explode originally as intended, and kids pick them up. Most of the people harmed by cluster missions are civilians. Most of our NATO allies in 110 countries around the world have banned these weapons altogether. The United States has not. To be legitimate in bringing people together around proper attention to civilians, attention to human rights, attention to war, the way we conduct war fighting, the United States should join this treaty. This week we've had revelations about Russia using anti-personnel landmines. This is another weapon that is particularly terrible to civilians because it's indiscriminate. Whoever comes near the mine, it makes it explode. Historically, civilians have been the ones harmed by landmines. I don't think the United States has yet condemned Russia for this, but this is a treaty that 164 countries are part of, every single NATO ally besides the United States. The United States has not yet, even though... In, uh, UN Ambassadors said the US is going to change policy on landmines. It hasn't yet. So again, this is another way the United States is out of step with this idea of being part of this democratic world that does things differently. And then finally, um, the arms trade treaty, I want to talk about this. I, I think one of the questions we might get is, uh, how do we make this risk approach better around the world? Because if if another country decides, oh, I don't care about the risk or I'm going to do it anyway. This is where something called the Arms Trade Treaty, this is the first treaty that is in existence to regulate the global arms trade, where every country agrees to avoid sending weapons when they're gonna be misused, and they get to apply their own laws. Um, The United States signed this treaty under the Obama administration, the Trump administration tried to unsign this treaty, and the Biden administration has yet to move back to supporting this treaty. Again, this is a treaty that almost all our NATO allies, all our major partners are part of, If we want to talk about risk in the arms trade, we need to have a floor and a baseline agreement. And that's the arms trade treaty. And again, the United States is out of step on that. Uh, Hopefully, that's helpful and intelligible. Um, And thanks for, I'm happy to talk more details, but thanks for inviting me in.
0: Thanks, Jeff. And um, I got an update from some of our colleagues outside uh, saying that uh, ETA of 10 minutes, almost exactly 10 minutes ago, so hopefully the representative will be coming in any second now, but I don't want to bring this to a grinding halt. So we will transition to Q and A now. Again, if you are here in the audience and you'd like to ask a question, please uh, go up to the mic. If you are watching at home or online, uh, please you can submit a question either via Slido if you're on the Cato Institute webpage, or you can use the hashtag CatoFP uh, if you are watching on a social media site. Um, before, I, I have a couple prepared questions, so I'm going to ask them first, and then we'll we'll go to you. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, stay close by. Um, but to explain what the process is like, Jordan, I know that in the Arm Cell Risk Index, you, you sort of lay this out in detail. For those who might not be fami- intimately familiar with, like, how does an arm cell get through? Can you describe that process, and then also describe where does that process create potential difficulties for folks like yourself who are interested in saying, drawing attention to the risk.
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. So basically, the way the process works is the president will notify Congress uh, of a sale, right? So the president agrees to sell F-16s to the United Arab Emirates, right, notifies Congress. At that point in the Senate, any senator can issue a joint resolution of disapproval to vote against the sale. In the House, it has to go through the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And this is actually where like one problem arises, that sometimes it just doesn't get through. And you can't pass a joint resolution because you don't have both, uh, both chambers. The second problem that emerges is even if it gets through and in both houses a majority vote to not let the sale go through, the president can then veto it. And we saw this twice during the Trump administration. So Congress ostensibly needs a veto-proof majority. Uh, current legislation, a few months ago, we had Chris Murphy come and speak about this, is like flip the script legislation, which would actually make it so Congress would have to vote to approve a sale, not to disapprove a sale. And this would have like two kind of broad impacts. One is it would mean Congress people would need to justify why selling F-16 to a country that is risky for both human rights reasons and conflict reasons, et cetera. They would need to justify why that country should get those weapons. They would need to do so publicly. But the second reason is it gets rid of the ability for the president to veto. The president could then veto a a, a resolution of approval. But because the president notified Congress of the sale, that wouldn't make any sense. Like he wouldn't want or she wouldn't want to stop the sale. So what Flip the Script does is it would both increase salience of these issues, but it also would make it so Congress has more power to stop these risky sales.
0: And what about the, because uh, uh, in, the, in the piece you talk about, Department of Commerce now has some more authority here. Um, can either of you like, describe how that works out and how that's different from the, from the foreign military sale process? Yeah,
2: I'll try not to go too in the weeds, but stop me if I do. Um, The way the United States sells most of its major weapons are either through this foreign military sale process, which is government to government, or a direct commercial sale process. Forget the word commercial is in there, and commerce. Those are two different things at this stage. (laughs) Direct commercial sale process, which is negotiated by companies with another country, but still has to have government approval. Um, One of the things that Jordan didn't get a good overview of how the process works, A foreign military sale, you and I as the public, have some transparency into this, because it goes on a website that we can all see. A direct commercial sale does not go onto a website that we can see. And any public information you get only says it's of a a specific threshold value. It doesn't actually tell you how much it is. So we are really reliant on Congress to raise the flag on direct commercial sales. So for example, last May in 2021, Uh, while all the fighting was happening in Israel and Gaza, we were surprised that this major sale to Israel of weapons that could be used there was going through. That was because it was done direct commercial sales. The public had no transparency into that. Um, Those are still, for most weapons, those are the processes. They still require congressional uh, notification, so on and so forth. There is also a ton of weapons we sell which are dual use. So these are things that have, you know, civilian applications, and weapons applications. Those have moved off what's called the US munitions list, which is what is defines what is in the direct commercial sales and foreign military sales program, and moved over to the commerce control list. So uh, on the commerce control list, the Commerce Department issues those licenses. It's in charge of that process. State and defense and some others also advise on that, but commerce is in charge. So what I was talking about in terms of these semi-automatic weapons, non-automatic weapons, which used to be considered military items, even including some sniper rifles, which are really are. These are military items. I mean, in most of the world, a semi-automatic is a military item. It's not in the United States, but in most of the world it is. Those have moved over to the commerce control list. They've moved off of this process, and now commerce leads that. And uh, it was really interesting, to just to add an anecdote here. In 2019, when I testified on this, um, uh, Representative Malinowski was on the, the panel. You know, it was in his committee. And, and he h- had some really interesting remarks because he was in the State Department at the time when they would talk about these. And he would say in almost every instance where commerce had say, they would choose the commercial interest over the human rights interest. Um, and that is one of the concerns. The, I'll stop there.
0: All right. Um, I believe we had a question from the audience here. Uh, thank you. That's my, yeah. Oh, If you could say like uh, your name and, and affiliation too. So my name is Alec Boyajian, I'm an intern here at the Cato Institute. And so my question for you was, you were talking about the trajectory of arms sales with regards to human rights. Hopefully that there are things formulating like treaties so that we can ensure that our allies are cooperating in their best behavior. In the wake of the Russia-Ukraine invasion, we're starting to see uh, a trajectory towards de-dollarization and turning away towards the US in that large superpowers like Russia, India, China, uh, Pakistan, the list goes on, are starting to turn into each other for economic ties and possibly armed ties. So my question is to you, what do you think the trajectory is of efforts like these to make human rights very prominent in arms sales, given that the US might start to be excluded from
1: the major powers of the world? Thank you. You wanna go first? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. So I, I think that's a great question. And it gets to this broader picture of if the U.S. doesn't sell weapons, then could somebody replace them, right? And the common argument you're going to see is this idea of leverage, right? Selling weapons gives the U.S. leverage. If they don't sell it, China, Russia, Italy, whoever will will have that leverage. The the problem with that argument is, and, and I've asked this to people at the State Department, to people at Congress, There's never an example where they can clearly give where they're like, yeah, well, the U.S. had leverage and was able to do this because of the sale. The fact is, countries like Turkey may threaten, right, they they buy the S-400, they may threaten that, oh, we'll transition over to Russia. The grand majority of Turkey's military, of Saudi Arabia's military, is funded by the United States, so transitioning over isn't easy. The U.S. is in the driver's seat. And what's going on now is this idea of almost like a reverse leverage, right, where Saudi Arabia uses a U.S. weapon incorrectly in Yemen and then requests more weapons. And because the U.S. does not want its weapons, like killing innocent civilians, it it sends more weapons, more trainers. And that process just is never-ending, I think largely because of also, like, the economic interests. But would you like to... No, thanks, it's,
0: so, uh, Jeff, especially, because several questions uh, came in through the online audience too about this aspect of, by selling the weapons, doesn't the U.S. have more influence or leverage over the recipients, and isn't that better than, say, the Chinese or the Russians selling them? So it's a it's definitely a common argument, and I know that we talked about it in the green room before, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I'm curious to get your thoughts yeah, on I that. Mean, this,
2: is, this is the most common question that we, in our community, get, and we actually started keeping videos of it so on the forum on the trade website for like different people, how they answer this question. Um, I, I, Jordan did a really good job of sort of the frame of how there's typical ways to respond to this. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what develops moving forward. Um, at, at a fundamental level, just because someone else will do something isn't a reason for you to do something. I mean, if it's a bad idea, it's a bad idea for us, regardless if someone else is going to do it. I mean. So there, there's sort of just like a fundamental misunderstanding here. Uh, the fact that countries can't easily convert over is one we often talk about. The, the leverage piece is very important there. I think what is missing in a lot of these conversations is the conversation about how else do you engage with these countries? How is that going to look? Because the, the track record of leverage is so poor. You know, We, with the Saudis, said, don't bomb all these targets in Yemen don't bomb these bridges, don't bomb these funerals, don't bomb these buses. We're giving you, or we're, giving, we're selling you all these weapons, don't do this bad thing, and they did. And I think we're also seeing many of the countries we are engaged in the arms trade with, at this moment we're asking them to condemn Russia and they're not, or they're not releasing oil, or they're not, like, I think the, the, the underlying assumption that suddenly if we have this arms trade relationship with you, you're gonna do what our bidding is wrong and often, as Jordan says, you can be captured the other direction. We get stuck into conflicts. Welcome. Uh, We get stuck into conflicts that we don't want to be a part of and being complicit. The other thing I'll just say is we don't know where the world's about to go. I mean, if we're talking about this sort of vision of how the the democracies are going to react with autocracies, we need to get our democracies together to talk about how we're going to react better. but what i think is really interesting to see right now is the amazing amount of other than arms actions that have been taken in this war have been overshadowed unfortunately by this influx of weapons into ukraine which is you know enabling ukraine to fight the russians but if you listen to Biden's, to Biden's speech in Poland, this is a longer scale, longer time frame, and this is where we talk about the economic sanctions, the other ways in which you relate to the world that you bring to play. The United States has amazing capabilities to help, help a country end in a certain direction, and finding ways besides arms sales to do that is what we're seeing in a negative approach right now with Russia, but if we turn that to a positive approach, Investments in the State Department, investments in diplomacy, that are also part of this budget that I have problems with. Um, I don't have problems with that part of the budget. The other parts <laughs> of the budget, I have. thats where we need to be having the conversation. Okay, instead of the arms sales relationship, what can we do instead?
0: Hi. Welcome, Representative Jacobs.
3: <laughs> Thank you, and sorry for being late, everyone. I had to vote to decriminalize cannabis, so I figured you all would be supportive <laughs> of that.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Um, so. I, I don't know if you had any, a couple of quick remarks prepared that you wanted to give. Uh, uh, we're doing the, the Q&A now, and I have, I have more questions lined up, so if you just like to... We
3: can go straight into questions. All right, yeah, great.
0: Um, so on, on the Ukraine point, because several folks have asked, uh, including uh, Kevin Moore on Facebook and the online audience um, about, you know, how, how does this arms sale picture weigh in here? Um, and I will say that, so for the arms sale risk index in particular, Um, There's a few a few points that I wanted to touch on about Ukraine before turning it over to y'all but the first thing is that most of the weapons that we are giving to Ukraine right now Aren't actually moving through a a foreign military sale process. They're coming through emergency assistance. So the process of that is different number two Ukraine is involved in a defending itself against a war of aggression against uh, that Russia initiated so a lot of these risks that the arms sale risk index measures, I think, in the in the immediate term, Ukraine is dealing with much bigger immediate risks, and so I think that that dynamic changes the calculus of do you go ahead with this arms transfer or not, where you know the immediate need outweighs the potential uh, long-term consequences, but the uh, potential long-term consequences of weapons down years down the line being diverted or getting lost track of or being sold to, to people might, might be a real problem. And finally, and this is something that I think we should go into next, is this uh, concept of end-use monitoring. Because that's another question that, uh, including from someone uh, who submitted anonymously, but you know, how responsible is the US for the weapons it uses? And I think for end-use monitoring, the US isn't really good at that in pre- peacetime countries. Much less in a situation where the war in Ukraine is over in the future, and it's recovering from a conflict. So, um, I think talking about—I know Jordan, you've been thinking about this a lot—but I open to any of you. Um, what are, what is end-use monitoring? First off, and how is it working or not working, and how can we improve it? Right, like this this phenomenon of keeping track of the weapons after you sell them to make sure they aren't being used in a way that is abusing human rights or what have you
3: so I think the way you frame the question about Ukraine is exactly the right question because every time we're making this decision whether it's military sales or military transfers or other forms of security cooperation you're looking at all of the different strategic interests and benefits and so sometimes there are competing strategic interests um, that outweigh some of these end-use monitoring concerns and You know, I was actually in Ukraine at the end of January, and part of what I was looking at out there was, as we're talking about increasing the assistance before Russia invaded, um, did we have the end-use monitoring in place? We know that Ukraine's on your guys' list. We know that they were one of the proliferators of illicit small arms into Europe. We know that while overblown by Russia, there are some concerns about white nationalism in the Ukrainian uh, territorial defense forces and military. And so what were we doing to make sure that our arms transfers were not going to, to make things worse? Once the invasion happened, I think it was very clear that the need to be, enable the Ukrainians to protect their own civilians and stand up to Russia outweighed any of those concerns that we might have had on the transfers. But it doesn't mean that as this continues down the road, that balance may start to go back. Um, And I think that's exactly how we need to be thinking about it. But I actually think, in a weird way, the way we've had to do the Ukrainian arms sales, uh, arms transfers, it's like one of the first times that Congress has actually been debating arms transfers in a real way. I mean, we have congressional conversations about whether we should be sending more stingers or more javelins. Now, I'm not totally sure we want Congress that in the weeds on every single one of these questions. Um, But it is actually a good case study in in Congress actually being involved in these decisions, for better or for worse, because there are times when I would say Congress is pushing too far and the administration is the one who's putting the brakes on things, rightfully so, in a few cases. Um, On the question of end-use monitoring, I think And I'm sure you know way more about this than I do. But to me, part of the problem when we talk about end use monitoring is that it's really a misnomer. We don't really do end use monitoring. What we do is what we set up during the Cold War to make sure that none of our technology transfers to the Soviet Union. But we're not actually monitoring any of the use cases of the weapons themselves. And I think that that's a real problem. I mean. There's a whole different conversation about what constitutes co-belligerency that I don't think we need to get into here. Um, it's something that people are thinking a lot about right now in regards to Ukraine and in regards to Yemen, I would say. Um, but even more broadly, it's not good for our strategic interests because you know, my background prior to coming to Congress was working uh, in Africa mostly and uh, working on conflicts in Africa. And actually, what what you would see is that one of the main drivers of violent extremist group recruiting was civilian casualties, was security sector abuse to civilians. And so in the name of counterterrorism, we're transferring weapons to these governments that are then doing the very thing that is creating more violent extremism that then we have to work with them to try and solve. And so I think it it, it is important for us because we don't want civilians to be killed, but it's also important for our broader strategic interests that we actually actually do end use monitoring, which we just frankly don't do right now.
0: Turn, did you want to weigh in on?
3: Uh,
1: thank you for A coming in B. That was put substantially more better than I could put it. But yeah, we, we are, are the end use monitoring in the United States is severely lacking. in 2020. The Department of Defense Inspector General issued this report about Ukraine saying that. Eh, one of the problems we're having is we're not really assessing the risk of like who's getting these weapons. And it was kind of just put under the bed. We've seen the same thing in South and Central America, where there have been reports saying, "Hey, we need to monitor these weapons more carefully, and it kind of just doesn't happen. So And right, I, I think there's a major strategic like cost here, which is that we can't predict what happens 10 years down the road. Unfortunately, we don't even it seems like we're not even really trying to assess it. Like we're not even giving it an attempt, and that comes with consequences.
0: All right, um we'll take uh, two questions uh just one right after the other
4: uh, yes hello my name is Juan I'm an intern here at the defense and foreign policy department uh thank you for coming all, all three of you uh, my question is uh how might public opinion especially as it reflects uh, the composition currently of Congress and and the house of of Senate and the house uh, how can it affect this growing awareness which Jeff was pointing out was pointing out about the Risk of arms sales, especially as it might seem that opposing arms sales or at least some arms sales might be viewed as weak or as unpopular by the wider public or at least some part of the public, and how can and how that can be un- counterproductive for elected officials such as yourself and for the wider, I would say, uh, arms control
0: movement. Great. And uh, I will say that someone named Allison did ask a, sim- a very similar question uh, online about the public opinion aspect, sir
4: thank you all. That was really excellent, uh, the, the initial discussion. My name's Evan. I'm with the Atlantic Council. I'm a fellow at the Atlantic Council. I've done some research about security sector assistance and Leahy Laws in particular. And as a component of the Leahy Laws, there is, at least in theory, some follow-up that the State Department should do reporting to Congress that would uh, require Congress to act to halt uh, security sector assistance if there was abuses happening. now it's not really fully happening in a regularized way but is there any theory or discussion about how that same about how that might be applied to arms specifically how we might take back arms that are sold is there any discussion about buybacks if Saudi Arabia violated it would we say We'll give you your money back, but we need these weapons back. Is there, is there any discussion about how we could make up for or counteract sales that went wrong?
3: Uh, I guess the public opinion question is probably from me. <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> um, and, and two things I realized I forgot to mention on end-use monitoring just really quickly is, one, even the and use monitoring that we do do doesn't apply to small arms. And so I think uh, that that is another aspect. And I know uh, Cato is is doing some work on that. And the second is the State Department is putting out uh, a new process that's trying to take more into account some of these risk factors. And I'm I'm really supportive of that. And I wanted to make sure I gave them some kudos. Uh, As I was saying, we didn't really do this. So on the question of public opinion, it cuts both ways. Because yes, sometimes we see the civilian casualties in the news. Uh, We've seen the New York Times do a really great job of this. Uh, That's directly the US military, not necessarily military sales. And I think we saw what happened with uh, the votes last Congress before I was there on Saudi. Um, And in regards to Yemen, that public opinion did push in that direction. Now, we didn't have a veto override, but, but on the other hand, you also see it pushed in the other direction. So part of the conversations on Ukraine right now are many members of Congress want to do more more more. And it's often the Defense Department coming to us and saying, like, actually, this is what makes sense. This is what doesn't make sense from a military perspective, from an escalation perspective. Um, and so, yes, m- more public opinion definitely raises awareness. I'm not necessarily it's always going to raise awareness in the way of forbearance, though. On the question of Leahy, I think there are two big limitations in Leahy. The first is that not everything is uh, has to have Leahy applied to it, so arms sales, uh, FMF, does not. Um, also, some programs like that our special forces do, like 127 Echo and 1202, which are programs that I'm really focused on, and uh, we're, we're working in the National Defense Authorization Act to get some more, hopefully all the way Leahy, but... Small steps in that direction for some of those programs. Um, But the other limitation of Leahy is that what what it looks at is, did a particular unit commit a human rights abuse? What it's not looking at is these broader risk factors that you all are looking at, like corruption, like governance, like all of these other things. And so while it helps make sure that at that tactical level The specific weapon is not going to the specific unit. It's not looking at our broader strategic goals in a country and making sure that we're feeding into what we want, which is democracy and good governance, instead of what we don't want.
2: So many things I wanted to say. But I'm also really interested. I know you introduced some some legislation this morning, which I think uh, you probably had some talking points. I'd love to hear those. because I think they also tie into the end-use monitoring in the sense that there would now be an outside way of looking at actual practices to think about future sales. So I think that that's a we. I talked about a different that legislation and some others in the earlier part, but I, I think you probably have some frames on it that are really helpful. The public opinion question is really interesting, and I'll just say that. Um, there are a number of polls out there that actually do show that Americans don't think weapon sales make us safer. There's a really interesting poll that came out from uh, the University of Maryland, last, actually Monday, that's looked at the flip the script idea, where they, they, they do this really interesting consultative process where they give you legitimate pro and con arguments and you say what you think. Uh, and a majority, Republicans, Democrats, independents, all thought having more congressional oversight would be good. So I think that there are, if you look at the public opinion, um, you can find the moments of this. I think almost always, if American soldiers are being killed, the fact that we might be selling the weapons that are then used against American soldiers, public opinion-wise, that always works. Um, I think, as, as the representative is talking about, certain cases, like the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, galvanized public opinion against Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has, has been the country of most... Uh, concern for decades, actually, for U.S. arms sales. But I'm getting whiplash. I mean, it's it's really interesting. If you asked me last year at the fall of Afghanistan, a huge amount of attention to the fact that, oh, my gosh, we had billions of dollars of weapons in this country that are now out of control. And I think if you took the public pulse then, right, it would have been like, oh, we got to be much more careful. If you take the public pulse now, let's send as much as we can to Ukraine. You see this sway. So I do think that that creates a bit of a challenge in this. The the question on Leahy Law, which is about how do we get weapons back, (laughs) I don't know that we, I I honestly don't know if there are examples of us getting weapons back. There might be. um, But when we sell weapons, countries have to agree on how they're going to use them. I have no idea if in that we have provisions about return of those weapons. If we don't, we could put them in there. But the reality is... It's really difficult, right? I mean, are you going to give it back? You ex-country, you're going to give this weapon back? So this is, once it's out of the hands, you know, there's not much we can do. And just the last point on Ukraine, sorry. I think you're right. I think right now, the balance of dangers is let's get stuff there, right? But this is true on all the other examples that we've looked at in the past. And my fear is 10 years from now, we'll be saying, look what we did there. Right? Look what we did when we <laughs> armed the Mujahideen in Afghanistan that eventually sort of helped become al-Qaeda. Right? I'm hoping that's not what we have, but I think we've learned this lesson so many times that what's frustrating right now is we aren't talking about that enough. I think if the decision is we're going to send these weapons, at the same time, we need to be honest about these are the risks that'll come with it. So I'm really intrigued actually, if you were in, a, in uh, Ukraine in, in January thinking about this end use question, what they were thinking about then. Because I get asked this all the time. I get asked, do we have any idea what they're doing with these? And I'm like, I don't know what procedures they had in place. And I bet whatever they did, most of it's gone out the door, right? I mean, so I, I don't know.
3: Yeah, so uh, on that question, We had a very robust State Department team in country that was working on end use monitoring that is obviously not in country anymore. And so uh, some of it is that we don't have the capacity to do the end use monitoring that we were doing before. Um, But I also wanna make sure we're clear about one fundamental difference in how we're thinking about this question, which is when you are arming a government standing up for their country and when it switches to when you're arming an insurgency, which would be the Mujahideen case. And I actually think both legally in congressional terms and philosophically or theoretically, they're different and they have different risks that come with them. And actually, I've been spending a lot of time with my colleagues talking about and thinking through what does make sense if it gets to a a place where this is an insurgency does it make sense for the U.S. to continue funding and arming? Does it make sense for the U.S. to continue supporting? I would, I would argue the U.S. often gets this calculation wrong. Um, we're not good at funding and supporting insurgencies. We've almost never been successful, and the only successful case people cite is the Mujahideen, which we know had other uh, issues down the road. And we know that basically there are two ways conflicts end. One side wins or you have a negotiated settlement. And so if you're not going to arm enough so that they actually can win or at least get enough leverage that they can get a better negotiated settlement, what kind of ethical responsibility do you have that in some ways you're just prolonging a conflict that more people are going to end up dying in as a result? These are tough questions. There's not a clear-cut answer, but these are the things. These are the questions we're wrestling with right now, and we are having those uh, conversations. You asked about the bill I introduced this morning, so I'll just quickly mention it. It's the House companion to the Murray bill that um, that you uh, talked about. It creates a Human Rights and Law of War Oversight Board to designate countries of concern, um, and once designated, if they commit a violation during three years. Um, uh, or fail to make progress on reforms, then they're banned for 10 years from getting weapon sales. It also applies Leahy vetting uh, rules to arms sales and arms transfers. Um, so we're very excited about that. And I know you mentioned another, a, a number of other bills that are, are going through um, as well. And we also have uh, done some provisions in both the COMPETES Act and in uh, last year's National Defense Authorization Act around human rights betting uh, into various components of how we engage with other countries.
0: Great. Um, We are a bit over the uh, 1 p.m. end time, but we might have time for one more question. Um, Oh, you you might have actually just answered this, uh, Congresswoman. Uh, Lauriane Hio, I apologize if I mispronounced that, asked, what are some of the measures that are or could be introduced to limit the risks of diversion and misuse uh, in the case, and and specifically in the uh, mentioning Ukraine it sounds like Congress is working on that. Um, it, I, I'm curious if there's anything that you've uh, witnessed, Congresswoman, about uh, coming from the executive side of this issue too, uh, in terms of like the State Department or uh, the DoD.
3: In Ukraine specifically.
0: Just in Ukraine, in Ukraine specifically, but also I think uh, beyond that too, right? Like what what sort of, you know, on the ground, right? Really specific uh, stuff that.
3: Is, is being discussed. Yeah, so as I mentioned, the State Department is working on a new uh, framework for how they're going to be thinking about some of the same risks that you all look at, which we're very supportive of. Um, I also think that uh, there is more awareness of this as an issue. Um, in Ukraine, in particular, a lot of it is working with our counterparts in Europe, who will you know, be the ones who are there um and especially the border countries to make sure that they have the tools they need to see if they start to see a, an uptick in small arms flows etc um and i also think while this is not specifically about the diversion of arms sales just today the administration announced the countries they're going to focus on as part of the global fragility act and i actually think that taking those countries and being able to look holistically at their fragility and then what the US government as a whole of government is doing to address that will go a long way in making sure that we're actually taking into account these risk factors in our arms transfers, hopefully. Um, And so I'll be working uh, really hard on making sure we get the implementation of the Global Fragility Act right. And I think the countries being announced today was a really important step there.
0: All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you all in the audience here and online for watching. We appreciate uh, the active questions. And I realize that there were some we couldn't get to uh, because of time, but thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, Thank you very much to all of our panelists and uh, for a great discussion. And the publication is the 2021 Arms Sales Risk Index. Uh, We've got other index updates for previous years as well on the Cato Institute website. Uh, If you're interested in this topic more, encourage you to check it out and especially the interactive uh, data visualizations we have. So thank you all very much for coming. Thank you.